to read in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. If you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the reading in your own Bible or the Bible in the rack in front of you, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. As the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas now arrive in the Greek city of Berea, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of noble, more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who accompanied Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the living word of God. May he indeed grant us ears once more to hear it. Now on these Sunday mornings, as you are, many of you, I'm sure, aware we are progressing through the second half of the Acts of the Apostles. Last Sunday morning, we came to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts with the great mission by Paul and Silas and his young companion, Timothy, to the Greek city of Thessalonica, where we discovered, you may remember, the preparation for gospel preaching and evangelism in the work of the Holy Spirit that had already gone on ahead of the evangelists in preparing hearts and minds for the word of God. And we saw the procedure for New Testament evangelism. And then we saw as we closed the product of it in the building of a remarkable New Testament church that began with a ministry of three weeks in length among the Jews. Now, it's simply fascinating to read, as I said to you, I think, last Sunday morning, the first and second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians in connection with the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, where Paul reflects, for instance, on how he was shamefully treated in Philippi, the city that they had ministered in before Thessalonica and Berea. Yet, he says, we waxed bold in our God to preach to you. And I'm sure that for many a lesser spirit, my dear friends, what they had experienced in Philippi would have daunted many men from even continuing as missionaries and evangelists in the early church. Those experiences certainly would have daunted a feebler faith than that of the Apostle Paul, and there's a sense in which nothing is more enlightening and encouraging to us to see how these men pressed on in the face of the most appalling opposition 
and rejection of their message with a brave persistence that was surely not due in any sense to human courage, but drawn from above and drawn from God because these men lived in daily communion with the Lord Jesus, the great King and Head of the Church who furnished them hour by hour with everything that was necessary for the accomplishment of their great mission. They were men who surely could say with the hymn writer, let courage rise with danger and strength to strength oppose. Now, as I say last Sunday morning, we were taken into the first nine verses of the 17th of Acts and the great mission in Thessalonica. But this morning, there stands before us the conclusion of Paul's ministry in this part of southern central Greece as he comes to the smaller city of Berea. And what I want you to notice as we come to this passage and as we look at it together this morning is that Luke is at pains to emphasize one particular and single truth of great and vital importance. What is it? The attitude to the scriptures. We've already seen this emphasis in the first nine verses in the mission to Thessalonica. When you remember, Paul reasoned out of the scriptures in verse 2. And he explained the scriptures in verse 3. And he proved things from the scriptures at the end of verse 3. And he proclaimed the word of God. The emphasis on the speaker's part is upon the importance and centrality of the scriptures. But then the same emphasis is being made, as we will see, as he comes to Berea, where you read that in Berea they received the word of God, verse 11, and they examined it at the end of verse 11 under a ministry that was obviously very similar to the one that Paul had already exercised in Thessalonica. Searching the scriptures. And the vital question you see that this answers is the question, what was the key ingredient to the gospel's triumph in these places? What led to so many becoming followers of the Lord Jesus and churches built in so remarkably short a time? And the answer is found in the case of Berea particularly in searching the scriptures. And that's what I want us to do together in the time that we have this morning as we look at Berea and Bible searching. And there are three things that arise out of this passage, and you will see them listed on the sermon note sheet as usual this morning. There was expectation, and there was examination, and then as a result of these two things, there was inevitably extension for the Christian church in that city. Now, first of all, then, will you look with me at expectation that so characterized 
this visit of the apostle and his friends to the city of Berea. And you read of that in verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. Let me remind you of what Luke tells us. Now he says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness. Now you remember that the background is that Paul and his companions have been driven out of Thessalonica under cover of darkness. It's almost like a modern thriller as you read the Acts of the Apostles, forced to leave under cover of darkness, clandestinely, leaving evidently Timothy behind at this stage after the Christian friends of Paul had posted bond against his return to the city. The revolutionaries had come there, as we read last week, and they would not be allowed to continue there. And so on to Berea these men went, traveling 60 miles across the rough Roman roads. And when they arrived, Paul repeated his usual pattern of entering into the synagogue in that town and evidently, though Luke doesn't tell us this, following the same pattern of ministry that he did in Thessalonica, opening the scriptures and expounding and explaining them there in the Jewish synagogue in Berea. Now Luke's comment is therefore revealing The Jews were of more noble character than those at Thessalonica. A comparison is being made. And we need to ask, why were they of more noble character here than there? And the answer is given immediately, because they received this ministry with great eagerness. They received the word of God, in other words, with great readiness of mind. And there are two things upon which I want to focus your attention in their expectation. What characterized this spirit of expectancy and readiness and willingness to listen to serious Bible preaching? And one is their attitude and the other is the attention upon that thing which was central their attitude, first of all. It was with great eagerness that they listened. Another translation says, with all readiness of mind. And this is what constituted the better response there. And you notice, if you look at verse 11, unlike the Jews in Thessalonica, who allowed Paul to preach to them only upon the Sabbath day for three weeks in the Jewish synagogue. In verse 11 we read that with great eagerness they attended upon the apostles' ministry every single day of the week. We could say the week wasn't long enough for these Bereans to hear Bible preaching. Not just upon the weekly recurring Sabbath, but upon every day of the week, they were under the great apostles' ministry. Now let me say to you at once that this kind of attitude, beloved, is rare, even in our churches today. Far more often, it is a closed mind 
that greets the messenger of the cross and encumbers his ministry. Because people have a natural tendency to be opposed to the truth of God's word. Let me suggest three reasons why this is so that point up the remarkable work of the Holy Spirit in taking away these obstacles from the human mind and heart. For one thing, the reason why the preacher so often meets with a closed mind is that the devil has blindfolded the minds of unbelievers. And we read of that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this age, says the apostle, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And you know, that is the source of so much difficulty in sharing and bringing the word of God today, not only in all cases to unbelievers, but in some cases to believers as well. That the evil one is always there in opposition to what God is doing. And he closes off the mind by saying, this isn't for you, it's for someone else. Or this is intellectually unacceptable in this modern and scientific and technological age. Or by whatever reasoning he comes and he closes off the mind of the unbeliever that is naturally, as we'll see in a moment, hostile to God anyway. It's as though men and women have been blindfolded from the truth. And the second reason, you know, is given to us in Romans 8, verse 15, where we read, but those who live according to their sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have the mindset of the Spirit. And you see, we have a problem, as we saw in the catechism question this morning, that sin is a nature as well as a state and as well as acts. And that sinful nature compels men and women to live for sinful and worldly things. And the unbeliever's whole focus, apart from God's empowering work of grace, is to focus upon the wrong object. He loves the wrong things. He sets his desire on the wrong things. That which a fallen nature desires, self and self-will and self-pleasing and self-gratification and desires and lusts of every kind sweep through the unbeliever's soul and bear him away so that the word of God falls fruitless on such a man's heart unless... God, the Holy Spirit, quicken him with a divine and spiritual interest in the things of God. Beloved, never underestimate these obstacles. Sin has deep roots, and it's so difficult to eradicate and can be done only in the power of God. But the third reason, you know, is again in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, where the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law. It cannot do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature, says Paul, cannot please God. And he tells us 
But not only is the unbeliever incapable of responding, he's in an actual attitude of aggression toward God. He is hostile to him. God is his enemy. And he cannot in that state be subject to the things of God at all. He has made a unilateral declaration of independence from Almighty God. And that's the state of the unbeliever. Now, in view of this, beloved, do you not see the significance of this passage? Where did that expectancy, that attitude of eagerness and readiness of mind come from? It didn't come from below. It came from above. And you see the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit's work in going forward in pre-evangelism, softening the hearts of the Jews who met in the synagogue of Berea. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning, there is no accounting for the sovereignty of God. At Thessalonica, this didn't happen to nearly the same extent. There was a mixed reception. In other cities that Paul visited, the Jews were hostile almost to a man. But here was different, a full reception, without prejudice, with eagerness to hear the whole counsel of God. As Jesus said in John 7 verse 17, if any man is willing to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And it was that sincere desire of willingness to be taught the truth that we meet with in Berea. And wherever it's experienced, it is the evidence of a profound work of the Holy Spirit. And we should be encouraged by it and we should pray for it and pray for it in this ministry here in Westminster. The attitude. But then the second thing about their expectancy, you notice, is the attention that they gave to the message. Do you see in verse 11 in the middle, they received what? The message. And it was the same message that so many of the Jews had just rejected in Thessalonica. The source was the scripture. The methodology by which it was served up was the same. Paul reasoned with them. He opened the scriptures. He expanded their minds. He endeavored to bring them to the position where they would suddenly say, I was blind, but now I see. And he proved from the scriptures by contrasting one scripture of the Old Testament with another and so setting forth a convincing case that Christ is the true Jewish Messiah who has come and suffered and died and been raised again. A straightforward, unadulterated, unadorned preaching of God's word. And they received the message. Now, you see, that's so significant in the church we're living in today. I am astonished, as I've come to live in America, how much attention is focused not on the message, but what? On the messenger. Even down to the tie he wears or the suit he brings into the pulpit or whatever or the color of his socks 
or his personality or his mannerisms or whatever it might be. But when God the Holy Ghost, beloved, is at work in a congregation, the attitude is one of eagerness and the focus of attention is on the message, not upon the messenger. And not the way in which the message is dressed up either. They understood the genius of the gospel as it appealed to their minds and they reasoned it out, not an assault upon their emotions to bring them to the point of faith by an emotional battery upon them. And you see, this is so important for us to grasp today because the old order of things, the sinful order of things, always makes its appeal to the senses as Satan did in the Garden of Eden, as she came to Eve and said, isn't this tree beautiful to look at? Look at the fruit. Don't you desire to eat it? But you see, the new order of the gospel, when God comes to us in grace, he doesn't make the appeal to our senses. What kind of preacher is this? What kind of tie is he wearing? How is the message dressed up? The new order of grace, beloved, appeals to the mind. And when God the Holy Ghost is profoundly at work in the hearts and lives of men and women, the truth is conveyed to the mind. And through the mind, the heart and the emotions are moved, as Paul said, writing to the Romans in Romans 6 verse 17, I thank God, he said, that you who were slaves to sin have become slaves to righteousness because you became obedient from the heart to the form of doctrine that was delivered to you. You see, that's how God works. He focuses attention on the message that is communicated to our minds and he awakens us to a sense of sin and need of Christ and shows us the way of salvation. And by the gate of the mind, the heart and the life are then renewed. Beloved, do you see what I'm saying to you in New Testament evangelism? There is never a superficial, unintelligent, proof-texting approach to Scripture. Paul argued from the scriptures. Paul proved things from the scriptures. And the Bereans went on, as we'll see in a moment, to examine them, to see if what they were receiving was the truth indeed. And Paul's preaching made Bible students of them, everyone. And you know, I do believe today that one of the main reasons why your Christian life may be weak, dear brother or sister in Christ, is not because you're not getting something that you think you ought to be getting and therefore you're deprived of it. But the problem very probably is that you're not making use of what you are receiving. And that's the reason for so much immaturity in the church today. Not because you haven't got what you really want, but your failure to apply what you already have. To search the scriptures with a new zeal as that great means by which God, the Holy Ghost, will come down with profound blessings upon your life and so upon the whole 
congregation. And there will be new zeal and there will be new insight and there will be new horizons as you realize biblically what God is doing in our midst. They examined with great eagerness the scriptures every day. Expectancy. Now, do you see, secondly, that what we are being brought to in this passage is uh, the message of examination? And that's the second thing that is now before us at the end of verse 11. They examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And that's why they were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica. Not only was their attitude one of reception and eagerness, but here they were ready to test the teaching of Scripture itself. Now, again, there are just two things that I want you to notice. The fact that they did examine the Scriptures. The Greek word that is used there is the word anakrino, and it's used very often of a judicial examination. In other words, a sifting through of all the evidence, a searching from the top to the bottom of a matter, up and down, as we say, as in legal research today, as a lawyer or an attorney prepares his case for the court. And this is what they did. It's the same word that is used in Luke 23, verse 14, when Jesus stood before Herod and Herod examined the Lord Jesus. Or in Acts 4, verse 9, where Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin examined them and discovered that they had been with Jesus. Or again in Acts 24, verse 8, when Paul stood before Felix, the first of his examinations, he was examined in the presence of Felix. And it's very interesting, too. It's the same word in John 5, verse 39, where Jesus said, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you search the scriptures, you examine them. But these are the very scriptures, Jesus said, that testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. There is such an examination without comprehension on their part. But what it means is thorough and investigative and detailed. They honestly desired to confirm that Paul's message was God's message. And that's why ever since in the Christian church, you may be aware of this, the word Berean has been applied to men and women who treat the scriptures with earnestness and seriousness. Now, what I'm saying to you is this, that what is impressive is that neither speaker nor hearers used the scripture in a superficial kind of way. As I said a moment ago, Paul's preaching made Bible students of them all. They examined the scriptures daily. Now, the second thing you notice is that they were intense upon discovering the truth for themselves. It wasn't enough that the preacher brought it to them. And it shouldn't be enough today in the church that some great personality teaches certain things 
or some new book on the Christian market has come out with certain new and novel ideas. The spirit of these men and women whom God the Holy Ghost was stirring up was to see if what they were learning was correct. By bringing the message they heard to the touchstone of Holy Scripture itself, they would not reject it without examination. And on the other hand, they would not accept it uncritically. And they had a proper standard in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now you see, what this teaches us surely today in our church life is that as we have the 66 inspired books of the scriptures and not just the 39 that were available in the days of Paul's ministry, we should bring everything, beloved, everything, to the touchstone of Holy Scripture similarly. And I'm reminded of that magnificent passage in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 10, that says the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be none other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Isn't that a magnificent statement? Having put the message impartially to the test of Scripture, these Bereans coming to faith, found to their joy, that what Paul said was, in fact, true. Now, beloved, in our age there is a cry, isn't there, for certainty and for truth. And we are in the privileged position as Christian men and women and young people to say to a questing age, there is a touchstone. It is the Holy Scriptures by which every teaching of man and every religion can be tested and either confirmed or confuted. And we too must seek the Holy God's confirmation of whatever is taught from this pulpit, in the books we read, in the videos and films that we see. And we must come to that same standard. Now let me say to you, that when a true, systematic, daily, serious search of the Scripture is undertaken by any man or woman, the result will inevitably be the same as it was in Berea. Verse 12, many of them believed. Because this is God's promise in Isaiah 55, verse 11. Is not my word like the rain and the snow that come down from heaven and return not thither again, says the Lord? But water the earth and make it fruitful, that there may be seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Is not my word like that, says the Lord? And I want to say to you this morning, what a joy it is for a pastor, for ruling elders, to meet such people as know that the Bible is their final authority 
And if they have problems and questions in their Christian lives or about the ministry of the church, they go to the scripture. And they say, is it taught in scripture? And if it is, then it's the answer to my question and my problem. And I bring my mind and heart obediently under the rule of the word. But if I don't find it there, then I certainly take those matters to whoever is responsible and show them where scripturally they are in error. But I say this to you. What an evangelistic opportunity for us as well when men and women today have grown so endlessly tired of humanism with all its false teaching about man and the world and God. And so many are increasingly eager to hear another voice that speaks with certainty to their case. We're living in days of growing interest Dear friends, in what the scripture has to say when it is properly dispensed. And we can come to these people and we can say to them, My dear friend, Christ whom I serve demands no blind adhesion. He does not say, open your mouth and shut your eyes and swallow whatever I give you. What a strength to come to people from that position. And oh, above all, how happy it is for a pastor who has a congregation who search and examine the scriptures and study them along with him. And don't just look up scripture verses, but analyze the truth that they're teaching and apply it to their hearts. An intelligent examination leads to a clear-eyed faith and the blessed result of growing in grace. You know, it's one of the great needs of the church. What do you do with the sermon? Let me ask you, what do you do with it? Do you forget it ten minutes after it's over? Or after the Sunday lunch is over? Or do you take out your Bible and read the passage and recall the heads of the sermon as our Puritan forefathers did and discuss them with your children and say, what did you get out of it? Can you repeat the pastor's three points and some of the things he said? Do you feed upon the Word? And you know it's for lack of doing that that some of us are so weak spiritually. Now, the third thing is this. There is not only expectation and examination, but blessedly, beloved, there is extension in verses 12 through 15. Because the result of these Sabbath and weekday synagogue sessions was most gratifying. In verse 12, many of the Jews believed, and a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Wouldn't you love that that should be the result of gospel preaching today? Beloved, when the Holy Spirit comes down on an obedient people of God and on an obedient church of God, that will be the result again. And the conversions will not be superficial conversions and professions of faith, but ones that last the testing fires of persecution. 
so that true nobility of soul consists in willing reception of the gospel combined with diligent search of the scriptures so that it results in faithful commitment to Christ. These converts were not products of a moment. They weren't brought down the aisle as a result of an emotional evangelistic appeal. But they were there as a result of solid biblical exposition in the power of the Holy Ghost. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, But they turn from idols, says the Apostle Paul. Thank God that you turn from idols to serve instead the living and true God. And he goes on to recount the radical change of life and their earnest waiting for the appearing of God's Son in great glory from heaven. And as you read those epistles, you see that the change was such, the real world for them in Thessalonica and Berea was no longer the world of sense and time and material things, but it had become the eternal world not that of passing and perishable things. And this is what saving faith did for them, as it always does, enabling them to turn from everything else to rest upon Christ alone for their salvation. Many of the Jews and others believed. Now do you notice, secondly, though, as we think of the extension of the church, just as I've said to you so often through the book of Acts, the course of the gospel, like the course of true love, is seldom smooth. Inevitably, there is opposition to a work like this. And do you know why? Because the devil is never off duty, and he never lacks agents to do his devilish work for him. And so you read in these verses that the Jews of Thessalonica, scorpion-like, wriggled their way from Thessalonica to Berea in order that they might oppose the preaching of God's truth. And not content with their evil success in the streets of Thessalonica, they became Paul's opponents over again to repeat the same tactics in Berea agitating, stirring up the multitude until once again Paul, the main target, is driven out and forced to flee to the coast of Greece to take ship to the great city of Athens. And there is another division. You see, the gospel inevitably is divisive in a world of sin and unbelief, but thank God, too late this time, because the good work was already fully done. My dear friends, as I finish this morning, let us who are on the Lord's side remain faithful and true to our great captain. In the midst of tribulation and unbelief, let us persevere. Let us be unswerving in our allegiance to him, come what may.
What I need to know is, am I expectant? Are you expectant? Am I examining the scriptures of God's word daily to see if these things are true? Am I being lovingly and powerfully exhorted to become more and more of a Bible student in the ministry of this church? That's what you need to ask. Are you expectant? Are you examining the scriptures? Not just proof texting, but digging in to the richness of God's word that you might be humbled and broken and remade anew in the image of Christ. Beloved, I tell you, I desire no more than that. The rest will come because extension always follows examination and expectancy in God's time and in God's way, first in you and then in us corporately together. Now, surely, this is the lesson that we learn from from Berea and the Bible searchers, searching the scriptures. This is the activity on which God, the Holy Ghost, comes down in power. And is that your goal this morning? For better acquaintance with the Holy Word, testing every new doctrine, every ancient error, Above all, coming to a firm, well-grounded and well-rounded grasp of God's eternal truth in Christ to our growth and his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we pray that this simple yet so necessary lesson might be born into the hearts of all of us. Make us like the Bereans. Make us, Lord, more like the Bereans. And may that great searching of the oracles of God lead to the expanding of our understanding, the proof that this is the truth of God's word, and lead in turn to such an outflow of concern for others that the gospel will begin to spread from us and amongst us as never before. Lord, grant indeed that this may be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.